0: There is an old but beautiful story about one of God's endearing followers during the Middle Ages. Francis of Assisi has touched the hearts of generations for his gentle appreciation of life in all its many forms. People cherished him for the love he had for animals and the care he gave the ailing and less fortunate. The story begins in the sheltered cloisters of his hillside monastery. There Francis invited a young novice to preach with him in a nearby village. The novice was delighted to be asked by such an esteemed elder. Surely he would learn by watching and observing his master preach. They strolled together down the hillside through country lanes bordered by farms. Francis smiled and greeted the householders along the way. He paused to pat an animal or two. Stopped under a tree to listen to the morning song of the birds, and seemed to enjoy the leisurely beauty of life outside the dark hallways of the monastery. But the novice was eager to get to the village and hear Francis preach. When they finally arrived at the town, they walked the length of the cobbled main street. Buildings blocked out the light. The streets were grimy and littered. Animals scavenged for food. People traded their wares. Francis wandered in and out the back streets, continuing to smile and greet people gently. The novice began to wonder when Francis would deliver his sermon. After a while, the monk turned, retraced their steps through the village, emerged into the countryside, and began the climb back up to the monastery. The young novice tried to contain himself. But as they mounted the pathway to the monastery, he could hold his tongue no longer. Pastor, he asked, I thought we were going into the village to preach. We have been, came Francis' benevolent reply. While we were walking, we were preaching. Sometimes there is no need for words. Our presence alone reminds people of what we represent. By our actions, we have been delivering our morning sermon. Turning to engage the gaze of his novice, he concluded, there is no point in walking anywhere to preach unless we preach as we walk.
1: I think I've heard that voice before. That was my wife, for those of you know. When I was a young pastor back in Indiana, um, we were always, um, every year, we had to go and prepare for camp meeting, which was always in June, which seemed to be the hottest month of the year. And we ministers had to go maybe a week or a week and a half early for what they called camp pitch because we had to prepare the campground. And we would go and we'd uh, put up these tents and we'd prepare everything. And uh, um, one day I was riding in the back of a truck with a bunch of other pastors and we had a load full of these iron cots. And these iron cots would go into the tents for people to sleep during camp meeting. And all of us were just kind of taking a cot and throwing it at the entrance to the tent. And then moving on to the next tent, throwing it off. But I noticed one man, his name is Glenn. He'd get off the truck, he'd go to the tent. He'd dragged that bed in, and these were iron cots. And he'd set those cots up. And I thought, I wonder why he's doing that. Nobody else is doing it. But he's doing it. He's doing that extra little bit. I was up there laughing and joking with all the other pastors just throwing that stuff down and moving on. But he was taking time to go set those cots up so that the people, when they would come, would not have to do it themselves. And I watched him. Not only watched him that day, but I watched him every day that we were together. And I watched him year after year. And when it came time for my ordination, you always allowed somebody who mentored you or did something for you or taught you things that you could take with you up there to the ordination. And of course, I asked Glenn, because he taught me so much over those three or four years. Not in terms of words or preaching or scripture, but because Glenn always seemed to do more than the rest of us. I hung back with the crowd, but I always had one eye on Glenn. Jesus said in our scripture today, by their fruit you shall recognize them by their fruit. He said you'll recognize them by their works, their actions, and their behaviors as testifying to who the true and genuine children of God are through their works. And those who are the imposters, the phonies, the mere profession of those who profess to be His children. Those who draw close to God with their lips, but not with their heart. It's the fruits that's going to tell the difference. Maybe even those who come to church, but maybe their heart isn't here. They draw close with their lips, but their heart is far from them. Those who have joined the church, but have not joined Christ. That is why Jesus said in the text towards the end, he says, I never knew you. I never knew you. Your life was only a facade. You were never transformed. You just look good on the outside. And Jesus here is referring about the judgment, and he says... At the judgment, those people who are imposters are going to be turned away because of their behavior, because of their works. Now, when we talk about works and we talk about actions and behavior, well, <clears throat> we really don't want to talk about it. Because we see that our works are not AAA rating. We see that our behavior falls short of the glory of God. And if we spend too much time on works, we might say, uh, well, we're not spending enough time on justification by faith in Christ, who is our substitute. And so we kind of stay away from that. And then we start getting really concerned about our works. When we read texts like this, and this is in Romans two thirteen, it says, "For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law that will be declared righteous." That's what Paul says. He also says in Romans two five through eight, he says. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when His righteous judgment will be revealed. God will give to each person according to what He has done. Preacher, don't talk to me about my works. For those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, He will give eternal life. For those who are self-seeking, who reject the truth, and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. We don't preach on that too much. But you remember Romans 2 is only one chapter away from Paul's treatise on justification by faith. And then comes this verse. Or these set of verses, and after I read it, I gotta go, yikes! This is what it says in Hebrews ten twenty six through thirty one: If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left. You want me to stop there? I'm not. But only a fearful expectation of judgment. And of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. That really encourages you, doesn't it? Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished? who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified Him, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace. For we know Him who said, It's mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge His people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Yikes! Again. I don't want to hear about that. I don't want to hear about that at all. Because that can plunge us into a deep concern and depression to the point of giving the whole thing up because I can't handle it. And many have done that. But if it's true that we are judged by works, then it's incumbent upon us to know What in the world God is talking about when the Bible says we are saved by grace, but judged by our works? That's the issue today before us. The issue I present to you today is how do I go from bad fruit to good fruit? Do I try it on my own? Do I do it myself? Do I white knuckle it? How do I obtain works? And what are the nature of those works that when present in the judgment lets me hear? Well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of thy Lord. And not hear those terrible words, depart from me, for I never knew you. How do I get on the good side? How do I bear good fruit? let me say quickly, I said obtain, not attain. There's a difference. Because these works are not from us. And that kind of lets you off the hook a little bit when you realize these kind of works that pass the judgment do not come from us. We obtain them. We don't attain them. Now, the answer lies in a very succinct little verse, which is at the bottom of your worship page. Second Corinthians 3.18, it says, And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, are what? Being transformed into His likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. There's two phases of addressing the issue of how I can have good fruit instead of bad fruit. The first issue is what we deal with first, and then we'll deal with the second. The first issue is to know and understand how God deals with us. Everything begins with Him. How does God deal with us? And secondly, what is our response to how He deals with us? That's the key. That's the key to having good fruit. Now, let's first of all deal with how God deals with us. Uh, Pastor Julio said we're going to tell stories. Well, I don't have any stories, but I do have three parables that I want to share with you. The first one is the one that we're all familiar with, and that's Luke chapter 15 And I'll be looking there at 28. But first of all, we all know the story about the prodigal son who wanted his father to die, couldn't wait for his father to die, took his estate, his portion of the estate, and went out and spent it on wine, women, and song. Destroyed his life. Ended up in a pigsty. And said to himself, Being a servant in my father's house is better than this. I'm going to head back home. And then you know the story, right? He wasted his life. The father must have been standing there at the gate every day looking on the horizon to see if he could see his son. And as soon as he recognized the silhouette of his son, what does he do? He comes running after him and falls upon his neck and kisses him. And we say, that's a beautiful story. I like that story. But not everybody liked the story. And we pick it up in verse 28 where it says, The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, listen to me. All these years I've been slaving for you, and I never disobeyed your orders or your rules. You never gave me even a young goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son, this wasteful son comes home, who's blown his life, he's squandered all the property with prostitutes, you're going to kill the fattened calf? Now you've got to ask yourself, was that fair? Man, if I was the elder brother, I'd be thinking, this is a mess. This is no good. I've been here slaving in the field, sweating in the heat of the day. This guy goes out, has a great time, blows everything, and he comes back, and he gets a party? Now, come on now. You'd have a problem with that too. The good for nothing gets a party. And the good boy, the good seed, he's been faithful all these years. He says, I've been righteous all these years. I've done everything. And you didn't do anything for me. All right. Keep that in mind. We'll go to another parable, another story. The workers in the vineyard, Matthew 20, verse 8. You know the story. How the owner of the vineyard came to town. He saw these guys standing around. He says, Where are you standing there? I got a job for you out in the vineyard at 6 o'clock in the morning. I'll tell you, you go out, you work the whole day, I'll give you a day's wages. They said, Well, that sounds good. Okay, we'll do that. 12 hour days. He did it again at 9 a.m. He did it again at 12. He did it again at 3. For those Adventists, he did it for five. Okay? They only had to work one hour. All right? They're at the end of time. All right. That's awful, isn't it? Anyway, (laughs) 12, 9, 3, and 5. And everybody agreed. Yeah, this is great. We'll do it. Well, notice verse 8. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the workers and pay them their wages. And get this. Beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. You've got to be kidding me. I've been out here for 12 hours. How come I can't get paid first? But there's even more insulting news. The workers who were hired about the 11th hour came and each received a denarius, which is about a day's wage, So when they came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a day's wages. When they received it, they began to grumble, just like the elder brother. They began to grumble against the landowner. These men who were hired last worked only an hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered and he says, Friend, I haven't done anything wrong or unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a day's wages for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the man who has hired the last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Are you envious because I'm generous? I got to ask you again, was that fair? Was that fair? I'm telling you, if I went out there and worked 12 hours a day um, that day, I'd say, no, that's not fair. I deserve more. These five o'clock people, who do they think they are? They would have grumbled. It was legal, they had a contract, said, I'll work 12 hours for a day. The five o'clock people said, we'll work an hour for a day's wages. And people grumbled. Now, Christ is describing something that is difficult for us to grasp. It's counterintuitive. Come on, you've got to be honest. If you look at these two stories, you've got to say, I can sympathize with those six o'clock people. I can sympathize with that elder brother. But the beauty of these two parables is that God or Christ is describing how God deals with us. And this has deep meaning. And if we don't get the meaning of what he's saying, we're going to misunderstand God and we're going to get caught up in the briar patch of works. Now, if we're rewarded according to works, as it says in the judgment And as one of the last verses in the Bible, Revelation 22.12 says, we are rewarded according to our works. And we must ask ourselves, was the prodigal rewarded according to his work? No. Were the laborers in the vineyard? No. We have to say no. That means we've got to look a little further into this. The Lord seems unfair in these parables, but He's not. Now I take you to a third story Luke 17, verse 7. Luke 17, verses 7 through 10. Suppose one of you had a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Would he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, Come along now and sit down and eat? No, he's out there working the heat of the day. He's working hard. He's tired. Seems to me he would be able to eat first. That's the way it was done. Would he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down and eat? Would he not rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink? After that, you may eat and drink. See, there's... Something in us that reacts to that. Say, well, yeah, I mean, I see servant, but he's been sitting in here drinking lemonade all day. I've been out here working hard, and I can't even sit down and eat and drink until this lazy bum gets fed first. We say, I don't like that. Jesus continues. Would he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, Jesus said, when you've done everything you were told to do, you should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. See, the owner, the master, he didn't have to say thank you. The servant was only doing what he was paid to do. What does this say? In other words, if I've done all the requirements of Adventism, I should say, I'm unprofitable. I'm unworthy. That doesn't feel good. What do you mean? I've been a faithful Adventist all these years. I've done all the right things. I look at my watch and make sure that I'm ready to go at sundown and ready to go at sundown on Saturday night. I've done all these things. I don't eat certain foods. I exercise. I do all of this. Jesus is saying here, if you've done it all, you're still haven't even made a dent, you're unprofitable. I like what the Bible commentary says when dealing with this particular verse and what was Jesus really saying. Page 838 of the fifth volume of the commentary, it says, that is, we deserve no special commendation The Master has received His due from them, but nothing more worth mentioning. He's not profited by their service to the extent that He should feel obliged to show them special honor. They have their wages, and that is all they should expect. He is under no obligation to them. So, when we have done our best for Him, we do not thereby place Him under any particular obligation. Us. We've done no more than by right we should do. If we've done our best in Adventism, we still do not obligate God to save us. The question in these parables is this Is God indebted to us? Or are we to Him? Do you serve God, expecting Him to pay you because He's obligated to you or to make Him obligated to you? Now, if in my mind I think that He is obligated to us, then He should pay us, right? Isn't that what the laborers were saying? Pay me a fair wage. Isn't that what the elder brother was saying? Look at all that I've done. Father, You're obligated to us. But if that's true, here comes another yikes. Because if that's true, and I ask God to pay me and give me my wages for all the good that I've done, What does that mean the wages of sin is what death don't be like the elder brother that says pay me because you're obligated or the or the laborers who said pay us what we deserve no wait a minute I don't want to ask God to give me fair wages I don't want him to treat me according to what I've earned or what I deserve You know what Jesus is talking about in these parables? He's talking about the wonder of His grace. The wonder of His grace. God treats us according to grace and not according to merits or works. And the New Testament attaches a special significance to this idea of grace. It's not merely God's unmerited favor to those who don't deserve it. It is His unlimited, all-inclusive, transforming love towards sinful mankind. It is not merely God's mercy and willingness to forgive. It's an active, energizing, transforming power to save. This is New Testament grace. Because it can fill a person. It can be given. It's all sufficient. It reigns. It teaches. It establishes the heart. This grace is the great element of His saving power. That's what Paul was talking about in Corinthians Christ gave his life to make it possible for man to be restored to the image of God. It is the power of his grace that draws people together in obedience to the truth. Now, if this is true, and it is, how do we respond to that? If God cancels my debt to Him because of Jesus and what He did on the cross, if He cancels my debt, does that leave me debt-free? The short answer is that I am not debt-free. Debt-free. I have been treated according to grace. Then do I not have a debt to pay to grace and this is the second point of the issue. in Romans 6:14 it says we're not under law but we're under grace. And if you looked at the original word there it includes the idea is that we are not obligated or indebted to the law but we are indebted to and obligated to grace. We're not indebted to the law because Jesus provided righteousness for me. He fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law, and I live by faith in His right doing. I am justified by faith in His right doing. That's my title to heaven. But does that leave me debt free? Does it take away all the obligation from me? No. Now, Jesus teaches this obligation of grace in Matthew 6:14 and 15, where he says, For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive you. That's a tough sentence. But in essence, it's saying that if you realize that you've been treated according to grace, then you will treat others according to grace. I will treat you the way I believe He has treated me. When you wrong me, I'll immediately forgive you. Before you ask, because God has not treated me according to my merit so I'm not going to treat you according to your merit. I'll gladly forgive you because He lavishly forgave me. And since I believe this, I will demonstrate it to you. That's why John said, We love because He what? First loved us. These are called works of grace. And that's what the judgment is looking for. The judgment comes at the end of the kingdom of grace. And if you're a member of the kingdom of grace, you'll be a member of the kingdom of glory. So if I've lived by His grace and my works are of grace because of His grace, it will be apparent. I will show that I have been saved by grace, by the works of grace that are present in me. But there are some, who will come in that day who have works of merit? They try to merit heaven. And they'll be judged by the works of merit and not grace. God says, I'd rather treat you according to grace, but if you insist on bringing your merits and obligating me to give you something, then I will. If I have works of grace, that means I've been saved by grace. But if I have works of merit, I'll be treated according to merit. And that's the problem with the Lord, Lord people. Lord, Lord, didn't we do all of these wonderful things? And he says, you didn't understand my grace. Go away. I don't know you. And that's the difference between the prodigal and the brother. The prodigal who did nothing right got the party. His brother didn't because the prodigal glimpsed his father's grace. Now Jesus illustrates this. Obligation of grace. In the familiar story of the debtor who came to the king, the king was going to settle accounts, and this debtor owed millions of dollars worth of debt, and there was no way he could pay it. So he begged for mercy. He said, Forgive me, or I'll do what I can. And the king showed great compassion, and he said, ah, forget about it. Go out and be free. You know, when you cancel a debt, somebody pays for it. God sent his son to pay for that debt. Well, what happens? Well, the debtor goes out. He sees somebody else that owes him just a tiny little bit of money. Not very much. He says, pay me. The guy said, I can't. There's no way. I'll get it as soon as I can. And what did this debtor do? He takes him by the neck and starts to choke him. He says, give it to me. Give it to me. Or I'll throw you in prison. And be careful of your friends. Because when the friends saw what the debtor did, they go back to the king and said, you know, you remember that time when you did this? Well, he did this to somebody else. So they brought him back. And this is what he said, you wicked servant. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? And the rest of the story is that he was thrown in prison. And Jesus says, this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. As severe as this is, the king was asking, Why do you abuse your own flesh and blood? Why is it do you demand payment when I did not demand it from you? Why are you so dictatorial and exacting when I've been so kind and merciful to you? Why is your heart so hardened when you can't respond to millions of dollars worth of love and forgiveness? Why doesn't love come out of you when I've given you so much? The Lord has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And that's why He is long-suffering and manifests grace by the millions of dollars worth where sin abounds what? Grace does much more abound. Essentially, God is saying to us today, since I have been so gracious to you, you now have a debt that you can pay. I paid the debt to the law. You have faith in me. You have eternal life. But now you still have a debt to pay to grace. Be gracious unto others who are wholly undeserving. Like you. The Lord is looking for our works to see how much I believe in His grace. If my works are kindness when you're not kind to me, when my works are patient when you're not patient with me, when my works are understanding when you don't understand me, When my works are compassion, when you're not compassionate to me, when I have a heart melted with love and grace for sinners, then I can hear the great statement, come ye blessed of my Father and inherit the kingdom prepared for you. But when he doesn't find these works, when it's Lord, Lord, haven't we done all these wonderful works? He says, I don't know you. Go away. prodigal's elder brother says, I've worked all these years. Treat me according to what I deserve. And the father says, I am. You'll get your wages, but you'll get no feast. He really didn't know his father. The prodigal, the good for nothing, he knew his father and his grace. And he says, Father, I've sinned. I have nothing to bring to the table. I'm nothing. The father hugs him, gives him a kiss, puts a robe on him, gives him a signet ring of authority, and then has a party. That's how God treats us. He gives us a robe. He cleans us and He calls all heaven for a big party. Because we've responded to His grace with grace abound.